Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Checkup Podcast from Medcast. In this series, we discuss the importance of physical activity for the patients and just how far it goes in preventing and improving specific health conditions. And most importantly, we discuss the underlying mechanisms of just how physical activity helps and the most up-to-date evidence of which types of exercise are potentially better for each specific medical condition. In the sixth episode in the Physical Activity series, Dr. Alison Vickers, a GP of 33 years, and David Jenkins, Professor of Sports and Exercise Science from the University of Sunshine Coast and University of Queensland, discuss the role of exercise in prevention and management of mental health presentations in general practice. Hey, David, great to chat today about the benefits of exercise for mental health, uh, particularly depression. A topic that is, I think, even more relevant at the moment as so many of us Australians are struggling through successive lockdowns, so much anxiety about the COVID and about the vaccines and about, I think, the future. And this is particularly accentuated for our patients that are socially isolated. You know, I'm looking after a a young girl at the moment, only in her 20s, and I'm, I'm so worried about her. She's completely socially isolated, living on her own family far away, can't get to see them. She's lost her job. So there's, you know, big financial problems and she's got severe underlying chronic diseases. And, you know, I just don't know what I have to offer her apart from talking to her regularly. And I keep on saying to her, how about going to get some exercise? Why don't you go for a walk? And I think it's because we read things. I mean, I just had a look at something from the Black Dog Institute and I'll read this to you. 16 weeks of regular exercise has been found to be equally effective as like antidepressant medication in the treatment of mild to moderate depression. And I also say that a recent study found that an increase in physical activity from being, you know, inactive to three times a week resulted in a 20% decreased risk of depression over a five-year period. I mean, that's overwhelming. And I think that's in my head when I keep saying to her, go for a walk, get on your bike, can you get down to the beach? So David, what I want to know from you is why, what's happening? Why is exercise such a benefit? What's actually happening? And maybe we can start with just in the moment, you know, you grab your dog, you grab your umbrella, whatever, and you head out for a walk or a jog. What's happening in that moment that's helping? Well, the, the it's it's a really interesting area, Alison, but we've known for so long, haven't we, that Activity, physical exercise, just improves cognition, improves and clears the mind. It allows us to think and process things and get over stressful situations. So what's what's occurring at the moment, particularly with depression and anxiety, um, researchers are looking at the mechanisms, the, the acute the immediate changes that might occur uh, in response to exercise, but also, and we'll talk about this in a couple of minutes, I know, but the longer term, more structural changes that have been um, shown with animal studies and now have been um, sort of transferred, in a, in a, if you like, to uh, to human studies. But the acute, the transient studies, I mean, we, we're all, we all know that if we, as I said, if we go out for a walk after a stressful encounter at work or at home, we're able to process and manage things so much better. I, there's sort of an intersection here between the psychological and the physiological, but it's a kind of resetting. And I think you've made mention um, pre- previously, it's the HPA axis, the cortisol, the sort of dampening down and the resetting of the, the adrenaline and the stress hormones, blood flow to the brain, 
there's also, you know, I, mean, I, I was thinking about this over the weekend in advance of our conversation, but, you know, I think evolutionarily we've, we've been <laughs> blessed with a kind of a reward system that if, you know, once upon a time we're hunter-gatherers and if we, if we set out and expended an enormous amount of energy and we didn't actually manage to find or hunt and catch anything, um, we, we, were, we were provided with some kind of little bit of a reward, if you like, to enable us or to encourage us to go out again. So we've got this kind of endorphins and this kind of a, a bit of a black box, if you like. But there's no doubt that exercise for so many of us makes us feel better. I love that. That That is, I mean, that is a fantastic concept, the idea of an evolutionary benefit that, you know, you might not have found the berries or you might not have caught the prey, but that you had to have someone, some sort of reward for going out. You couldn't just stay in your cave and go, well, that didn't work out so well last time. I felt horrible. I'm not going out again. So I, I think I think you've got something very, very convincing there. So really there's a kind of acute reward. The hormones make you feel better whether it's the, you know, the endorphins, the decrease in adrenaline, noradrenaline. But that moves us, I guess, to away from the acute effects. It's, it's also about the long-term effects of the exercise, exercising regularly. How does that treat depression or prevent us from getting depression? Well, we've we've long known, or well, say we um, <laughs> researchers in this area have long known that that uh, depressive patients or, or patients who have had chronic clinical depression for extended periods of time have a, a smaller hyper, a, a hippocampus, and and I know you, you've you've associated this also a hippocampal volume with um, Alzheimer's disease and and there's this relationship that we've spoken about before to Alison about depression and Alzheimer's. So there's a there's definitely an intersection or interaction here. What's been shown, particularly in the animal studies, because it's much more easy to show this with animals than with humans, but exercise will result in improvements in hippocampal volume. And this has been associated with reduction in depressive symptoms. And if we go back and think about to a previous podcast that we had together, and we looked at the the uh, the myokine irisin that got you really excited. Magic and- myokines. We're back to <laughs> yeah. magic myokines. You know yeah. I love that. So. <laughs> yes. you, you never need to be made more enthusiastic, Alison, but it's so good, so cool to get a response out of you by the magic myokines, which you've actually, you've termed them the magic myokines. But the, the irisin, which is produced by these, these muscles through contraction, through exercise, triggers an increase in the the brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and there's this neurogenesis of the neurotrophic factors that occur. And, and we know that, again, with animal studies, but there's, there's, there's evidence now emerging with human studies that th- this can improve the hippocampal volume. Exercise will improve the hippocampal volume and uh, depressive symptoms can be can diminish. So we're talking now, and I think you're going to quote me a study, or you just did with the Black Dog Institute, but these changes in depressive symptoms, and it's reasonable to think that the, the improvements in hippocampal volume can occur over several weeks. And so they're not talking many, many years here, but these are uh, chronic changes, structural changes, neurotrophic changes, neurogenic changes that will occur in response to exercise over several weeks. 
And is it just in the hippocampus or is there evidence for other areas of the brain as well? I would imagine, although the, most of the research at the moment has been done in the hippocampal volume, but I think there's precortex changes in the precortex as well. So, I, I mean, we've said this previously, Alison, but you know, we could be sitting down and having the conversation on this same topic now in five to ten years' time, and so much more will be known about it. I mean, if we, if but, but at the moment, the, the 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 weight of evidence is is with the hippocampal volume. I read something about the anterior cingulate gyrus. Um, not that I even knew much about it before then, but what I found interesting is that I think there were some studies also showing that it increases in size with some of the uh, antidepressant medications. So, you know, that excites you to kind of understand, you know, where the mechanisms are, but I guess also reinforces for me so strongly, you know, the best medication to get your hippocampus bigger, to get your anterior cingulate gyrus, your prefrontal cortex is exercise. That's going to always be, be the best. So you say that you, you probably don't need to do it for that long to start to see those changes. Do you think the changes are sustained? The hippocampus or the anterior cingulate gyrus shrinks back down again? Th that wouldn't be known at the moment, Alison, but from evidence across all other areas of exercise physiology, I think it'd be reasonable to assume that there'd be a regression. So that when you remove the stimulus, there'd be a, um, a return to, to what, what would have been baseline before the intervention. So, I mean, it makes sense too that we would be recommending exercise to be sustainable and built into a lifestyle. So apart from these structural changes, are there any other long-term effects for exercise over a few weeks that we should know about, David? Something else that will happen in response to exercise undertaken over several weeks and months, Alison, we've spoken about this before, is that there's an anti-inflammatory effect that exercise has, reducing levels of C-reactive protein, for example, and other myokines and cytokines associated with inflammation. And given that there is a, a, an association between inflammation and depression, a, po a potential chronic mechanism that might be partially responsible for improvements in uh, depressive behavior with exercise training may be related to this reduction in inf inflammation. Um, you may mention a little earlier on about antidepressants, and it, even though these studies are probably yet to be conducted, it'd be really cool to have a look at the combined effect of exercise and antidepressants, whether you get an additive effect. One would think that there probably might be, but, but you know, the collective, I suppose, the, the combined effect would be a, a really good thing to look at, wouldn't it? But I guess the important thing with that in terms of the antidepressants with it is if you have got someone that's depressed and you can raise them a little bit out of it with the antidepressant, maybe you can get them exercising again. So I think that there's definitely, you know, some patients where you can see that that combination is going to be so important. I think anything that's likely to break the cycle um, without truly understanding what mechanism, whether it's the antidepressant, is is likely to be responsible for initially getting a person active. Um, it probably doesn't matter in the long term as long as this cycle is broken. The, the, the interesting thing here is, though, Alison, is so many depressed patients so bereft of energy. You're absolutely right. And it comes back, and I know it's a question that you're wanting to ask about what type of exercise is most likely to elicit the most favourable changes here. But anything, 
uh, if somebody is so, so depressed and so bereft of energy and motivation and they cannot get out of the house or off the couch, anything that is likely to get their muscles active to initiate these sorts of changes that are going to be responsible for neurogenic adaptations in the brain. This is going to be, anything is going to be a benefit. And, and I know some of the limited research that's been done at the moment hasn't shown any particular difference. There's equal, equal benefits from aerobic type exercise and higher intensity exercise. So, so it really is any type of exercise that is likely to get these people on a very low baseline active again. And they will, they will set, they will find their, their happy zone if they can if they can be motivated to 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 maintain exercise hopefully on a daily basis they will find what is best for them i can i think that understanding the mechanisms underneath really help to kind of motivate one uh, as a gp to yeah just look for the small wins I remember one of the specialists once saying, you know, when you're managing a patient who's truly depressed, if you can just get them to start by going to the letterbox each day, it's a beginning. And I think it now makes more sense to me, the kind of idea that even getting to the letterbox, you might get those initial kind of, you know, hormones that give you some sort of a reward. And if you start to do it every day, there might be just a small increase in the size of some of these areas. And so, the motivation grows. And of course, you feel better, you know, your self-esteem is better, you've done something, you've achieved something. And who knows, again, whether that's all part of those areas getting bigger, which is all to do with, with rewards. So what you're saying, five minutes, 10 minutes, no matter what you can do, is going to make a difference. Oh, I, I think because the baseline, as we said a minute ago, the baseline for some of these um, very, very depressed individuals is so, so low. Anything is likely to, to well, n- none of it's going to do harm. <laughs> and this is an important point. I think that sort of a theme that would run through the few podcasts that we've done together, Alison. Exercise is not going to do harm here. Um, and, and anything is going to be a benefit. Uh, even there's a, a mild placebo I mean, there are umpteen different ways, but but you write about the mechanism. Now that we know that there's a there's a physiological explanation for improvements in depressive symptoms in response to a regular exercise over several weeks, this is important because. GPs will be maybe explaining to the patients, well, you do this and the, the hippocampus, this particular part of the brain is going to improve its size. And, and you know, th- there's, a, there's a structure, there's a tangible outcome here, something measurable, not that they will be able to measure it, but something that you can actually put your finger on. And I think that's so important. It's so motivating. And I think even coming back to the evolutionary thing, I'm going to be using that because I think patients understand that as well. And so you're saying any amount, five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, whatever you can do. But I guess the more intense, if they're able to, as they get better and the more muscles you have, you always come back to this, don't you? If you build your muscles, you've got more muscles to make magic myokines. Well, that's true. And that's another theme, isn't it, Alison, that we've touched on. And everybody's baseline is going to be different. I mean, poor old Naomi Osaka, who has been so brave uh, to come out and and, uh, explain that, I mean, she'd be so, so fit in order to get the changes, the physiological changes in her physiology she very very high intensity exercise would probably be necessary for her so her baseline is going to be much much different to the great majority of 
clinically depressed patients that would go to to the GPs. So yes, anything anything relative to, the ba- to our own baseline is likely to be a benefit. I guess that brings up an interesting point, though. Is there a point where you can do actually stress your body and do too much exercise? You know, I think of uh, my my uh, partner who basically runs marathons. I mean, you know, I wonder often whether that actually does him more harm than good. Well, I, I think I think your partner is pretty safe here, but but you are touching on unhealthy behaviour where, where uh, exercise can be used in, in a damaging way, and and perhaps people in the extremes who who use an exercise, for example, to. I, I guess as an addiction, um, we, we don't we want to be helping people or prevent people moving into using exercise in order to mask um, perhaps some deeper underlying underlying psychological conditions because of the consequences here are uh, uh, can be can be dire as well. So even though the the population number may be fairly small in those people who will be using exercise in a sort of unhealthy way. Yeah, I think that's, you know, it's probably a whole topic to look into in terms of its complexities. I think we're heading into different territory there. Uh, but the territory that we're definitely in at the moment is is COVID. And, you know, COVID's come with its own challenges in terms of exercise for people and being able to to exercise. It's good to see so many people out on, on the streets, uh, but for a lot of people, I think it's been very difficult. Um, do you have, you know, sort of advice in terms of during lockdowns or where people can't get out as much uh, in terms of how they keep up this exercise? Any, well, if we, if we go back and say anything is going to be better than nothing, um, even exercising within the house, there are certain exercises that could be done. I, I know you've mentioned this to me previously, Alison, where the, there are electronic games and all sorts of things. Like that. And even that can have some effect, some benefits. Um, I know my wife, my, my, my wife's, uh, I can hear my wife's voice talking to me at the moment, although she's 100 kilometers away so you might be asking <laughs> <laughs> what, what my problems yeah. are but, uh-huh. but 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 as a clinical psychologist she'd be saying well there, there's mindful mindfulness and all other things like that but but I think any exercise even if you're housebound is going to be a benefit um sitting out in the sun I mean if, if we just wanted to take this into a slightly different territory again there's there's a, an amazing body of literature that's going to be developing over the next five to ten years of cold water immersion you know, I think down in the in in your neck of the woods in in Sydney and, and further south too, we get these open water swimmers, and it's just the uh, just the immersion in very very cold water. So anything that's going to disturb homeostasis is likely to is potentially going to have um, significant benefits. It's true. I, I see them coming out of the water, and they do. They look exhilarated. I always thought they looked exhilarated because it was over, not because maybe they just damaged their homeostasis. So that is that is a good thought. But I think, yeah, maybe time to break out the wee fit, see if I can dust it off and get us all doing that. But I think the take-home message from you then is that there are underlying mechanisms that make us, give us advantage from moving and it doesn't really matter what we do, how much we do, how little we, we do. We, we just need to do it, do it regularly. And we really have to find out for each of our patients what is going to, to work for them. 
I think so. And and the other thing too, which is probably very common to everybody who might be listening, the GPs in particular, is that what we tend to do, and we all, this is our default for many of us, is that we tend to exercise on what's left over at the end of the day. So our commitments to family, our work, our caring responsibilities, we'll do all, everything like that first. And then what's left over and whatever little energy is left over, we'll devote to it, to exercise. And perhaps what we do need to do is to rethink this and say, well, let's build in other acti- other responsibilities around an exercise, a- around exercise. So, so perhaps the day, the night before we go to bed, we can have a think about how we're going to protect our exercise or activity time the next day, and then build everything else around it. So we can elevate in terms of priorities in order to ensure that we're going to get these magic myokines being released and all these ma- amazing things that are going to have, in, uh, have an effect cognitively and long term. I think that's an extremely good point. We're all so busy and exercise often does come last and yet we need to prioritise it. Uh, so, David, I think this is fantastic, so motivating, so much more powerful for all of us to recommend exercise when we understand the mechanisms, we can share those with the patients. And I guess we can, as I said, help talk to them and work out how they're going to fit exercise into their routine based on how they're feeling, based on where they're at at the moment. I just love that idea that every time I move my muscles, you know, every time I get up uh, and walk around, maybe skip, play with the dog, I'm getting those acute benefits, but I'm also getting those long-term benefits in the areas of my brain, building up my hippocampus, protecting myself against mental illness, and also, you know, things like dementia as from our previous podcasts. So just all such important and valuable information. Thank you so much, David, again, for sharing such useful information for us GPs. Always a pleasure, Alison. Thank you. Bye-bye. That was Dr. Alison Vickers and Professor David Jenkins discussing the latest evidence in the use of physical activity in prevention and management of mental health presentations in primary care. The Checkup series of podcasts is brought to you by Medcast. Medcast offers a range of CPD courses for doctors, nurses, and allied health professionals. Our courses range from the popular Hot Topic series of workshops and webinars to practical critical care courses. This year's Hot Topics webinar series is starting on the 17th of November. The updates in the series cover a range of topics, including depression. You can enroll in the Hot Topic series individually or as part of our newly launched GP Education Bundle that also includes women's health in general practice, emergencies in general practice, and diabetes in general practice. To find out more, visit our website, medcast.com.au. We look forward to your participation, and thank you for listening.